How are you? I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I'm okay. <laughs> you think? I think so. I hadn't thought about it until you just asked me that. Well, I'm glad you think you're okay. I think I'm okay. I mean, I'm sure if I thought about it for a little bit, you know, I probably wouldn't be okay. But, uh... It's <laughs> <laughs> the world we live in these days. So how about the moon? Yeah. So we're, uh... I was confused by your tweet. Well, not confused, but... You tweeted, you said, we're going back to the moon, but we're just going, like, around the moon. Right. Maybe. That's the plan. That's the plan. I mean, NASA's also planning on going around the moon. Right. I think, but they're planning to go to Mars, as is SpaceX, so who knows? I mean, a lot of people are planning on going to the surface of Mars. Yeah. I, I I would say that going around the moon is going to the moon. Sure. Yes. Like, you, you went to the distance of the moon slightly past it and then yeah. came around sure like if you don't want to come back it's not that much harder to get to the surface than it is to get into orbit <laughs> i'm guessing we whoever went to the moon would probably want to come back and talk about it a little bit sure that's now, part granted, of the... they're not even going into orbit they're just doing a flyby mm-hmm. and and doing a flyby is significantly easier than actually going into orbit right and I, I haven't read this full press release yet because I figured you would educate me on this in the show. Who's going? We don't know. Somebody's paying for it, though? Two people are paying for it. Okay. All we know is they, they know each other, apparently. Okay. The fact that they were like, and these two people knew each other beforehand makes it sound like these are two people who separately wanted to go to the moon. And it wasn't like two people who were like, hey, let's go to the moon together. Right. But basically, yeah, two people are privately paying SpaceX to send them to the moon. Okay. Because they want to go to the moon. And uh, an interesting note, I'm guessing this is because they paid to have it done this way, but they're going to do a kind of funky orbit. So normally when you're going to the moon, what you would do is you would set your aperture Nor- Normally, highest. normally when normally, you're going to the moon, yes. <laughs> as in every man-made object which has ever gone to the moon. Okay. Or at least every man-made object that's ever done a flyby. Mm-hmm. What you would do is you would set your apogee, the highest, the highest point in your orbit from Earth, to roughly the distance that the moon is from the Earth, which is 400 kilometers. Mm -hmm. What you do is you would swing around in front of the moon, and you would do what's called a retrograde uh, half-orbit around the moon so that the moon's gravity slows your orbit slightly and pulls your perigee then back into the atmosphere of the Earth. And so that's called a free return trajectory. And so every Apollo mission used a free return trajectory on their way to the moon, which is why Apollo 13 was able to get back safely, because they didn't have... They actually did end up burning their engines to do an adjustment, but in theory, they would not have needed to do any adjustments whatsoever mm-hmm. and would have been able to get back to to Earth. And so SpaceX is also doing a free return trajectory, but rather than doing... Normally, you would do it that way because it takes the least amount of energy because it takes the, the farther away from Earth you want to go, the more energy is required. What SpaceX is doing is uh, doing a shorter flyby of the moon and having a higher apogee. So their apogee is going to be about 650 kilometers or 400,000 miles, which I initially was like, 400,000 miles, that must be, somebody must have misspoke because the moon is 400,000 kilometers. But no, they actually meant miles. So uh, the people who go on this mission, assuming the mission happens and is successful and they go in this orbit, will break the record for the farthest distance any human has been from Earth. Yeah. Once you said that, I was like, ah, I see why now. I get it. Yeah. So presumably, I'm going to guess 
they're only doing it that way because the people also paid to break this record. Yeah. Or, I mean, I guess it's another thing for SpaceX while they're doing this to get their name in the news again for, like, they, Elon or whoever is running SpaceX, I don't know if he runs it day-to-day or whatever. Uh, Gwen Shotwell runs it day-to-day. They are really good at keeping their name in the news. Yeah. With things that are really far off. This isn't so far off. This is just a couple of years, right? This isn't even a couple of years. This is next year. 2018, right? Yes. So, I mean, by the time they actually do it in 2018 could be close to a couple of years well by the time they actually do it in 2019 or 2020 <laughs> <laughs> right and they're just really good at continually like oh you're tired of hearing the story about how we're going to mars we're going to the moon oh you're tired of that we're gonna or you're tired of hearing how we're landing our rockets like this then we're gonna do this other thing um i mean to, to be fair like potentially this being the first time humans have gone to the moon since apollo is kind of a big deal it is a big deal and that's why i think they're They continually talk about these things they're going to do before they've done the first thing they said they were going to do, right? Sure. And I think that's a strategy. And and we see it from Tesla, too. So I think that's like a thing that Elon likes to do in that he just sets lofty goals and makes sure. And the skeptic in me thinks that part of that is an investor ploy. If you keep your name in the news and you keep like these lofty goals and you keep changing the conversation, that's the skeptic in me. The optimist in me just says that he has lofty goals and he likes to talk about them. I mean, I could see that argument more for Tesla than for SpaceX, just because SpaceX isn't publicly traded, right? doesn't, yeah. as far as we know, get uh, investments other than through government contracts. Right, that's fair. And people buying tickets to the moon, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know how much they paid? Um, we don't, but they said it was comparable in uh, what SpaceX charges to deliver things to the ISS, which is $110 million. Um, the price listed on their website for a launch of the Falcon Heavy, which is the rocket that'll be used for this, is listed at $90 million. That doesn't include the Dragon capsule that'll be carrying them and then the additional costs of, like, ground support and training, which actually are probably going to be... I can't imagine that actually would cost more than a couple hundred thousand overall, so it's probably very small in the context of, like, the overall mission. But, yeah, so somewhere in the realm of $100 million total mm. so probably about 50 million per head let me check uh i'm a little short and i don't think i'll be making that trip this time around no maybe but hey Mar- mars maybe <laughs> in 2025 will only cost 200k okay we'll see i mean uh, that's that's more in the realm of like if you really just wanted to go live on mars like you could choose to buy a house or you could choose to buy a house on mars mm-hmm all right, it's far enough off that I'm not going to even consider such such a thing as a remote <laughs> yeah. possibility. Cool. Yeah. I don't know. I, th- I thought it was really cool. Yeah. You know, NASA's not in the news. Very, well, <laughs> actually, NASA was in the news. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, you know the whole timing of this. It, it's kind of awkward with NASA. Because they're because SpaceX is going to beat them when they're they're uh, what's the name? What's the the SLS? Yes, that thing, the shuttle yeah. launch or not shuttle Senate, uh, Senate, Senate launch system. Yeah, space launch system. But but it's jokingly called the Senate launch system because like everything about it is kind of mandated by Congress and not NASA. <laughs> and they're what's the thing called? You know, there's Orion, Orion, that thing. Yeah, right. So they're going to be doing EM1, the first mission, uh, the first test flight of the Orion capsule in like 2019 or 2020 i think was the plan and there was about two weeks before the spacex announcement an internal memo that went around nasa saying that they were investigating having the first test flight of orion be crewed rather than uncrewed uh and have that go around the moon do you think that's because they're behind Um, because they're behind 
like they're behind their original estimates, which is obvious. Like that, all these. That's why we're saying. I mean, like, they're behind their over triple the original estimates, right? I, in we, terms we, of cost. When we just went, my family just took a vacation to Tucson, Arizona, where they have the um, Davis Monthan Air Force bases out there, and they have a Pima County Air Museum. And part of the Air Museum is like this section on NASA. And so we went in there and uh, they have, you know, a few things. Um, they have some planes from NASA that, are, that were used for various reasons. And it's actually really cool. If you're ever out there, it's actually really cool if you're interested in airplanes. They have like an SR-71 there. They have like a, a whole bunch of old bombers and some of the original fighters and like some pretty cool stuff out there. But um, there was like a video area in the back where they were talking about Orion and the video was like it'll be taking its first manned space flight in 2017 or something like that. I was like, oh, it's 2017 now. Uh, no, it's not. Right, and until, well, until this memo went out, the planned first crewed mission was like 2023 or something. I mean, yeah. the, the SLS isn't actually supposed to be online till 2026 at the earliest or something like that. The, the first flights of Orion are going to be launched by a Delta IV Heavy, if I remember correctly. Which yeah. is right now the heaviest launch vehicle uh, in service. The Falcon Heavy will be about triple its payload capacity. The interesting thing about like talking to my son about this stuff, who's interested in space, because kids are interested in that type of thing. Sure. And because it's cool. Um, <laughs> when the space shuttle was first like invented, right, or first like we're gonna we're gonna make something that looks like an airplane that goes to space. Everybody was like, "What? That's not how you go to space. You go to space on a rocket." Right. But now all he knows through books, because he's like in his lifetime. I mean, when did they make the last shuttle flight? Uh, 2011. Right. So he was one. <laughs> so in his life, he's never seen a space shuttle flight. But that's just how spaceships look to him. Right. So it's interesting to show him old stuff where they went on a rocket and then to kind of tell him like, no, that's kind of what they're going to do now, too, because they're going further. Like they're not just kind of putzing around outside Earth orbit. Right. Uh, or in low well, for Earth me orbit. too. Like for me, the the shuttle is sort of the quintessential. That's what a spaceship looks like because right. that was what America flew for my entire lifetime. Like he has Legos. He got them. I don't know, a couple years ago or whatever. And he plays with them, and he's like, and it's flying around the moon. I'm like, no, it doesn't fly around the moon. <laughs> but yeah, they don't have anything. They don't have Orion Legos. So you know, you just got to make do right. with what they got. <laughs> no, I mean, if you look at SLS. A rendering of SLS and a rendering of Falcon Heavy, since neither of them have actually had pictures taken since neither have actually been built. But if you look at renderings of the two side by side, like the Falcon Heavy looks more futuristic, but the SLS just looks more like a cool rocket to me. Because it, ha it, it especially if you look at the, um, the really early renderings back when it's like, because right now it has the big orange tank in the middle, because it's, you know, the same tank that they used for, for the shuttle. But the original renderings of it back when it was... Um, I don't remember the name of the project that SLS came out of, but whatever the name of the project that SLS came out of, the original renderings of it, it had like the black and white Saturn family style paintings on it. And that just looked really cool. Like mm -hmm. just it, it, it just looked like a Saturn V, but with like the shuttle solid rocket motor strapped on the side. And I don't know to me that it was just it, it was cool looking. I'm just saying, I'm, all I'm saying is that SLS is a cool looking rocket and kids <laughs> should have SLS Legos. Yeah, they should. It was, it, you know how Lego has like that ideas site or whatever? I don't know if you do. They have like an ideas site where people can like submit designs that they think Lego should build. And if it gets enough support, then Lego will like explore building that. And Lego actually has an exclusive licensing agreement with NASA. So if they wanted to build Orion Legos, they could. And there is an Orion Lego set on there, but it didn't receive enough votes or whatever. So... Um, I actually just ordered one of the more involved models 
one of the Saturn V and one of the and one of the shuttle. It's going to get here on Friday. Cool. Be a um, good hobby for a couple months. This is what this podcast is now. We talk about space and Legos and models and models. Well, I mean, we talk about Rails models and uh, rocket models. <laughs> Nice segue. <laughs> okay. Yeah, see what I did there? Uh, what's going on? You been doing much this week? Much programming? Um, <laughs> yeah, sort of. But I don't know that talking about how I've replaced our usage of tuples in diesel with H-list structures is going to be a terribly accessible or interesting topic. No, let's not do that one. Um, <laughs> I have something. So okay. I was talking to somebody at lunch the other day about how like you... And also a lot of people at ThoughtBot are into different strong statically typed languages uh, sure. for various reasons. I have not really taken the plunge. I've investigated them. But as we've discussed in the show, I'm not really like into them because I'm not working in a project in them currently. But it's interesting to me how much just the conversations about them, the conversations I have with you, the conversations I have at lunch with other developers here impact the way I look at my Ruby code. Because I'm constantly now looking at Ruby code and being like, oh, these branches return different types. Or right. like, oh, this should be a maybe. Like, that's the first step, right? Being like, oh, I want to get rid of nil everywhere. And then the second type being like, we had a bug. The reason why I thought to bring this up was we had a bug in the code I was working on this week where it was like, in a controller, we were doing like, you use strong params, right, to get the params out or whatever. And we we're using like, as part of that, we we're using params.fetch and then some key. Mm -hmm. And the second argument to fetch was an empty hash. To say, like, if this doesn't exist, then just go ahead and give me an empty hash. But those right. things aren't equivalent, right? An empty right. hash is not an, is not an action controller parameters object. Uh, it will be. What? We override all of those methods to wrap any hash-like objects in action controller parameters and any array-like objects in, in any of like the per, In any of their permit and require stuff, right? And square brackets and fetch. On params? Yeah. Interesting. I thought I had, thought that's what the bug was. Anyway. Maybe I mean we might have forgotten to do it on fetch. Or actually, you know what it probably is? We probably didn't do it on the default to fetch. Right. If there's a bug. Right. That's probably what it is. Because I was ninety nine percent sure what the bug was is like later on we pass that object somewhere else and later on we do some additional strong parameters massaging on it. And yeah, because when you work. create an instance of action controller parameters, we walk through that hash. And if we see that any of the values are hashes, we wrap that in action controller parameters as well. Right. So, yeah, you're right. We, like now that I'm remembering how exactly we go about doing that. Yeah, we probably don't do it on the default of fetch. Right. But anyway, I, it was just like an example of an area where I see that or also seeing it in like places where you're assembling some complicated scope or something like that. And there's a conditional in there that says, like, if this is true, then just go ahead and return empty array, right? Otherwise, the scope I want is, like, the combination of these five or six scopes or whatever the case may be. Right. And that breaks because empty array is not a chainable relation, right? So right. If, if at some point in a later date you decide you want to chain onto that relation, you can't do it. So now... Well, that one, I mean, that one, luckily, we gave you the tools for. Right. You get uh, none, right? Right. Which you can return instead. Right. So that works. But it's the thing, it's the kind of thing like when I submit that pull request, people go, well, why does this matter? And you're like, well, if you ever chain this, and it's like, well, I'm not intending on chaining it. And it's like, you're not intending on chaining it now. It's a simple change to make. And it returns it. So this, this method returns a consistent type. Right. right. I guess if you were to take the statically typed equivalent, mm -hmm. you would have two options, right? Either return this, like return a relation in all cases, or alternatively, you restrict the type that you're returning to say this returns a thing that implements enumerable. Right. 
so that the compiler would disallow you to try and chain onto it. Right. If that's what you intended to do. Correct. But I just think, like, as I was talking about this at lunch with some people, it's just like, yeah, once you start thinking about this, it's everywhere in your Ruby code. And you can't right. help but see the bugs. You're like, this is a bug waiting to happen. This is, it's just like a time bomb. You're like, this is a bug waiting to happen. This is a bug waiting to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know. It just made me think more about being like, oh, I really need to get on doing something else because I don't like I don't know if I can any any longer in good conscience do this. <laughs> well, but I mean, I think that's part of why I encourage so many people to learn these languages is not necessarily because I then expect, oh, and you're going to go use these languages for everything. But it does change the way that you think about Ruby and other dynamic languages. Right. Certainly has changed the way I write Ruby because I try to eliminate things like these as much as I can. And it's not necessarily something I understood from the get-go without really kind of investigating these other languages. So at the same time, it's funny because last night I went to a recruiting event here in Boston to try and see if we could recruit some software developers. Sounds like a fun time. Um, it's not something I want to get too much into, but it's also not something that ThoughtBot has historically done. But it was like, let's give it a shot, right? So it's one of these recruiting events where you... The companies pay money and the people like hosting the recruiting event say that they're going to like you tell them what you're looking for and they say they're going to like basically drum up some candidates to come to this thing. They give them food and all that stuff and tell them like, oh, there's like all these influential companies that will be there. It'll be great. So I went to this thing and it turned out to mostly be what I would call systems developers. (laughs) Uh, So like a lot of C++ in fact, sure. which was weird because I didn't think there were that many people writing C++ that would just show up to a recruiting event, but hey, there they were. A lot of Java, uh, a lot of .NET, things like that. I mean, those are the three most popular programming languages sure. like in terms of number of jobs. Right, but this thing was specifically marketed as like a startup recruiting event. I wouldn't say that mm-hmm. like you're getting a lot of startups choosing Java at this point, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, beside the point, I got several people coming up to me being like, why rails like why and i was just like listen <laughs> and the answer i gave them is also a counterpoint to my like oh my god all these bugs how do i deal with this i can't believe we write code like this the answer i gave was like it's really quick and so like for our target market of like founders with an idea early stage startups trying to prove something people trying to get to market quickly like there's nothing right now except for with the exception of elixir and phoenix which i think is in the same ballpark that is as quick to production Right. right from from zero to production app and even back when the decision was made to do rails at thoughtbot that was around the time that like things like heroku were coming out and that was like an easily deployable platform to target and right. it was it only supported at the time only supported rails i believe you know and they've added other languages over time but like that right. was a huge thing you're like i don't have to worry about my deployment infrastructure anymore i just git push done boom Get pushed, get paid. Um, right, that's right. <laughs> um, so I made that same argument. So like on on this podcast, I'm saying like I can't believe we're still doing this. And then last night was making this other argument. But I mean, I, well, and I think that's part of why you haven't seen Haskell or Rust or whatever else statically typed that people are into mm-hmm. take off quite like Rails has. Is because yeah, nothing has ever quite, at least nothing ha- has got that initial productivity feeling. And certainly not, never match the time to market. And of course, the counter argument to that is, well, if you plan on your product existing for more than a year. It doesn't matter. It, right. Like this is this is just front loading a bunch of bugs that, uh, you know, dealing with bugs that are going to be a nightmare to debug in production later, which is kind of true. And then it's just a balance of like, well, time to market versus time to not fall apart. Right. 
we haven't hit it yet, but I think we will eventually, one of these languages will hit the sweet spot where I don't think anything's ever going to beat the just like out of the gate productivity of a Ruby or a Python or a JavaScript. Mm-hmm. But I do think we will see one of these languages get to like the 10 to 15 percent range of like it gives you all of this protection against these bugs and doesn't noticeably slow down your time to market or your prototyping ability compared to the scripting languages. And I think that'll be the magic right. threshold when you when when you start to see the strong static type languages gain a bit more of a uh, foothold in startups. Right. The other interesting thing that came out of that event was like, as I was talking to people, they would be like, you know, what are you looking for specifically? And I'd be like, well, we're looking for Ruby on Rails developers or Elixir and Phoenix developers. And the number of people who said, what's Elixir? Was really high, which right. isn't surprising, I guess, but it was a little disappointing. <laughs> um, the number of people who had no idea, had never written Ruby was pretty high, which was right. disappointing because there were a number of companies looking there looking for Ruby developers. I just think it wasn't a particularly well-run event. Well, there's also the whole you shouldn't look for developers of X language argument. Um, yes. This, uh, I go back and forth on this. So I, I think that's true. I think that's true for some folks, right? There are positions where that makes sense and they can afford to be like, yeah, I can take you from a Java developer to a Rails developer, right? And I can do that over three months or whatever the case may be. Sure. A consulting position where... <laughs> frankly, we don't make any money if we can't bill you on a client project, that's a tougher yeah. sell. I suppose that's true. So we can do some of the teaching you Ruby bit, but you have to have, you have, to have some exposure to it. Or at least be the type of person who doesn't set... Like, if you're not going to know Ruby, you should know significantly of Ruby, right? You should be able to talk to me about Ruby. Um, yeah. and maybe not necessarily write Ruby and, and certainly know what Elixir is. If you're, if you're, I think if you're the type of person who's going to be successful as a consultant at ThoughtBot who comes into it and somehow day one knows no Ruby, then you need to be the, you need to check those other boxes. Uh, likely. Otherwise, I mean, we're going to be looking for Elixir wouldn't be as well known among Rubyists if Jose William wasn't. Sure. And I actually had that conversation with people last night. They were like, tell me more about the, because like, so this event was run and you basically have to spend, if you start talking to somebody, you have to spend five minutes talking to them before they can leave. Um, okay. So like pretty quickly, sometimes you're like, this isn't a fit, but let's just talk about whatever. And so people were talking about, you know, tell me more about Elixir. And it was like, yeah, you know, the functional bit is part of the draw, but also I think it's just very familiar to Rubyists because Jose is involved and has that same feeling. Right. Every time I say that Elixir is similar to Ruby or that... It's syntactically similar to Ruby. Or that Phoenix is similar to Rails. Looks similar to Rails. I get a lot of <laughs> negative feedback. Right. From people who say, like, how could you say that? One's functional and immutable and the other... But, like, I know. Pretend I am an advanced enough developer to know those differences. <laughs> Right. Give me a little bit of that credit. You can't look at the two and be like, they're not and be like, well, this isn't this would be totally foreign to a root to a Rails developer. That's right. ridiculous. Like, <laughs> anyway, so if you're out there and be, heard me make that comparison, and you think I'm being ridiculous. I think you're being ridiculous. No, I, I think I just I, I don't know. Anyway, that's no, I agree. Like they're, they're, regardless of the deep rooted differences between them, the similarities are more than are much more than superficial. Yes. And I think that's fine. I think that's great. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't think that's to Elixir or to Phoenix's detriment. I think it's likely a positive. Anyway. On um, the flip side, 
to all the people who are like, Ruby sucks, Elixir's so much better. One could say it's to Ruby's benefit that it's so similar to Elixir. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. I know a lot of Elixir developers jumping over to Ruby. Um, <laughs> actually, I know a lot of Elixir developers who just go back and forth. Right. Like myself. Yeah, so that's been, I've been doing a lot of like recruiting type stuff. So that was an interesting event last night. I think it was not something I would do again, but I'm glad to have done it once. And talking to people this morning about it, they were like, oh, you went to, oh, you went to that. They've been sending me emails, like super annoying emails trying to get me to like go as a candidate. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. I guess maybe I should have looked into this a little bit more beforehand, but uh, it was an interesting experiment. I think it's good to experiment with those things, but it's difficult for me to talk about ThoughtBot to a room that has never either never written Ruby and also never heard of ThoughtBot. Like, so both of those things are true and they're not like potential customers who have an app they want built that I can explain. Like if you came to me, you're like, you don't know anything about programming languages, don't know anything about ThoughtBot, but you're like, I have an app, I have some money. I would be able to very clearly tell you what ThoughtBot's advantages were to you, right? What the value proposition was to you. Right. But to developers who aren't familiar with Ruby and aren't familiar with Rails and aren't familiar with ThoughtBot, and for the most part, frankly, in, in this situation, we're enterprise software developers. It was hard for me to articulate like what ThoughtBot does. Because I, I would talk about like we're a design and development consultancy, or sometimes I would say agency or whatever to try and like try different words. But like all that I kept getting back was like clear that they had a picture that what we are is a place where we give you Jira backlog, you plow through Jira backlog, right? Right. Which is in the development world, that's what the word consultant I think means. Either that or somebody who's going to come in and like change the structure of the team, right? That's a man. That's more a management consultant. But development, right. development consultant, I think especially particularly in the enterprise world, has this connotation of, yes. you know, you're just going to plow through this backlog. And that's not at all what we do. We more cooperatively build a product. And then leave crap code behind because you don't ever have to maintain code for more than right. a few months. Right. So luckily, I don't think it cost me much because there weren't very many people who were fits there. But it was an interesting right. like, oh, I don't know how to pitch this. Like, I know how to pitch this to people who are potential clients. I don't know how to pitch this to developers who aren't aware of us. So I, I have been noticing because usually people who haven't heard of Ruby and people who haven't heard of ThoughtBot are very overlapping set. But I, I remember, at least back when I first started working for ThoughtBot, if you had heard of Ruby, everybody knew knew about ThoughtBot. And I've been noticing the number of people who know Ruby who don't know of ThoughtBot has been an increasingly large segment uh, yes. in the last couple of years. We are noticing as well. <laughs> um, we've had people tell us in response to our recruiting emails, tell us like, oh, I've heard of ThoughtBot. I used their gems. I didn't know they had a Boston office. right it's like oh okay like this is kind of like okay we need to figure out why that is and if we care right right i think the answer to the second question is yes (laughs) i think it's beneficial when you know like i agree that the days where i could go to a room full of ruby developers and say i work at thoughtbot and confidently know that everybody in that room would know where i work are probably behind us for some reason and not not potentially always but it may be just like that you know there are more ruby developers than ever before yeah I think it's also partially like ThoughtBot has like its gems are less prominent than they used to be and it's less present at conferences than it used to be. Yeah, maybe. That's probably a big one. Like like back when Ben was speaking at every conference, I think that contributed heavily to everybody knowing who ThoughtBot was. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only speak for me, but like I just kind of came across the blog uh, when I was mm. getting into Rails development. And then like the first time you come across it, you're like, okay, cool, this problem solved. And then the second time you're like, oh, this is the same people. And the third time you're like, oh, this is the same 
people and oh look this gem is this gem is by them and then it's like okay i'm gonna just i'm gonna subscribe to this rss feed right like <laughs> right back in the days when people subscribed to rss feeds back when google reader was still a thing yeah i actually uh, am trying to give rss another shot because i think i've discussed how i've i don't know if i talked about it on the show before but i'm kind of taking a uh, i'm back on twitter but definitely less so than i used to be because uh i like i, I need more control over when i'm gonna get dosed with negative political news so yeah, i agree <laughs> um, I want to be involved and I want to be an informed citizen, but I, I don't need a micro dose of that all day. Right. So, uh, I've been kind of kicking the tires on RSS again, so I'll have to publish my OPML feed someday. <laughs> I mean, Hey, I, if you want to make an open source RSS reader, I'll use it. Okay. I'll do it in rust and your web, Perfect. where's your web framework? Uh, I had a baby instead of a web framework, <laughs> but Rocket seems like it's pretty okay. I had a baby instead of a web framework. I love it. Um, no, literally, I was going to make a web framework, but I have a baby and I don't have time. <laughs> but somebody else made a web framework called Rocket, which looks mm-hmm. like actually pretty okay. And I had a bunch of concerns about where the developer's head was at with regards to security by default and mm-hmm. looking at open issues that he has opened himself. It seems like his head's in the right place, so I have high hopes for it. Cool. The other thing I've been doing is preparing my talk for RailsConf. Yes, this is good. We've talked a lot about what makes a good proposal before, but I don't know if we've ever talked about, like, what's your methodology for preparing a talk? So what is your methodology for preparing a talk? Because you give a lot of them. Yes. I don't know that, like, Eileen would be a better person to answer this because I know she has a very, very specific structure that works really well for her. Mm-hmm. And I sort of don't think I'm actually very good at writing talks. Are you a last minute, I'm going to cram this all in and I'm going to, the first time I do the whole thing is going to be on stage? Or... I, have, I will admit, sadly, I have done that once or twice. I very specifically try to not do that because I hate when people do that. It depends on, like, there are people who do it and do it well, and you don't know they did it, right? And then sure. there are people who do it, and you're like, and the whole time they're like, I'm sorry, I'm, I wasn't prepared, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, thanks. Appreciate your concern for my time. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, so I, I certainly I don't, like, rehearse the talk as much as a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. I, I will kind of go through it in my head, like, silently rehearse it, and then I'll go through my slides and at, like, a one and a half speed read what I'm going to say in my head rather than saying it out loud to a mirror just because... A saying it out loud to a mirror and work and working on timing and whatever just takes a really long time and I lose focus way too easily <laughs> on that. But I don't know. the one thing that I do that I know not a lot of not everybody does, but uh, a few people do. I think Sandy does this as well. Is I actually just write everything I'm gonna say, and I mm-hmm. and I give myself a script and they're in my speaker notes. And yeah. I, I usually try and memorize that script before I give it, so I'm not looking at my speaker notes, but like it's there. I start with a written script. And I say this like I have a process. This is now going to be like the third or fourth talk I've given. But I start with like basically writing out maybe not complete sentences, but basically a script. I've used Dexet for a long time. So I start yep. with a markdown document and make notes in Dexet, which is like you just put them after like the triple hyphen or whatever. Yep. Um, and I write exactly what I want to say when I'm showing this slide. And I go through the whole presentation like that. And then I start giving the presentation either to the mirror or I have make my wife listen to it, which when I was doing the code review talk was fine because it was actually very general purpose. And she was like, yeah, this is just about giving feedback, <laughs> you know? Right. So she was able to participate in that. This one's going to be a little more technical, so I don't know if she'll be as excited about hearing it. Also, to be fair, she wasn't very excited about hearing it when I gave it for like, I don't know, 
probably I, I probably gave that talk in front of her 10 or 15 times before I actually gave it on stage because I'm that I have discovered that I am the type of person who must have given that talk that exact talk before the first time I give it so like right. I can't just run through it really quickly I have to sit there and actually do it at the pace I'm going to do it at and, and like get into the mode of actually giving the talk I mean I, de- I definitely always find it beneficial to give it at least once at a meetup before giving it at a conference right but I don't even want to give it I don't want to give it in front of anybody who I'm not married to <laughs> <laughs> so if your wife if your wife saw your code review talk was just like this is just about feedback is she gonna see a rest talk and say wait so is this about naps <laughs> that joke has already been made among my family uh Aww. when i told them i was when i was uh they were like what rest <laughs> what's that uh, but yeah i mean if you saw the first version i gave of that talk to her like when i finished and i looked at her and she was just like oh boy <laughs> I was like, just go ahead, be honest, hit me with everything you got. And it was like, the the talk changed so much just in those practices. And part of that was because I hadn't done it before, right? So I didn't know what to do. And so I'm getting a little better. at The the first drafts come out a little better, I like to think. But then, so yeah, I do the same thing where I write everything I'm going to say. But then if that's there for me, if everything I'm going to say is there for me in the speaker notes, then I can't help but read it. So as I was practicing the talk... My wife would be like, why do you keep staring at the screen? I'm like, because everything I'm going to say is on here and I need to make sure I say all the things. And so she encouraged me and I ultimately obliged to like, okay, start with like three bullets. You can have three bullets in your notes, not on the slide. I don't like bullets on the slide. Three bullets in your notes. And so I started with that and she would be like, those are complete sentences as bullets. She's like, you get one word, two words max per bullet. Mm. And so like, it actually really did for me. And these, these things are all personal, right? But it did, right. it made me become more comfortable with what I was going to say and made me more natural sounding, I think, in what I was saying, because I, like it was rehearsed, but it wasn't a hundred percent the same every time because I wasn't reading anything. And eventually I got to the point where some things, most slides either had no notes at all, or just like one or two small words to remind me of what I was going to say. And in the beginning I was so panicked that I was like, the reason why I didn't do that from the beginning is I was so panicked that I was going to forget to say something. And I was talking about that with my wife and she was like, it doesn't matter if you forget to say something, nobody is going to know. know, Right. And I was like, oh, I guess you're right. Like, and sure enough, like the very first slide of my code review talk, I forgot to say like one major point that I wanted to make. I don't remember what it was, but I remember like I discovered it on slide three that I was like, I forgot to say that thing back on slide one and i was like oh look i can just say it right here and nobody will know <laughs> like, <laughs> like right. perfect great but anyway so i'm the type of person i think who needs to like i do write the talk then i boil it down then i give it like 500 times to myself or to my wife or to i don't know my children maybe i'll make them listen who knows so that's I my mean, for what's worth i used to feel like i needed to rehearse a lot more i think that's probably yeah i definitely rehearsed for like the workshop i did last year less and i still think that it came out well like i don't think it was worse because i i didn't rehearse it i think you know i just was a little more confident do you still get nervous when you speak yes (laughs) i also think doing the podcast helps right like when we first started doing this podcast like 101 episodes ago or 102 episodes ago or whatever it is we would have like a card that had like here's what we're going to talk about and sometimes even like bullet points of like we're going to talk about this first then this then this then this then this because we were so nervous about like not having something to talk about right and now we show up and sometimes we have like hey i want to make sure we talk about this thing that happened this week but most of the time we just kind of feel out a way to talk about something Speaking of which, and I'm only bringing this up because we're at 40 minutes, we should talk about the S3 thing before we wrap up. Okay, let's do that. But yeah, I think having the podcast and making it so that like 
I just have to be able, we have to be like, it gives me experience in just reacting on my feet to something that's yeah. happening. And nobody's it's listening. It's also to be- reassuring to know because, like, nowadays when you give a talk, you can be relatively certain that, like, a, a, a decent percentage of the audience has listened to the podcast. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Like a, like, a lot more than a year or two ago. Right. You know, when I go to a conference now, more people come up and talk to me about the podcast than about Rails, which I find interesting. That's great. But I, I don't know. For me, that was all, like towards the end of my speaking. Like that was a very I, I felt much more comfortable on stage knowing that like I wasn't necessarily a complete stranger to the entire audience because of the podcast. Right. Also, like through both the podcast and having spoken now at two previous Rails comps, I know more people. So right. I know more people who go to conferences frequently and will likely be in the room, right? So there's a lot of friendly or familiar faces. Um, yeah. And that's not fair advice if people are listening and they're preparing their first talk. But certainly my advice is to find one person you know and be like, you need to make sure you're there and you sit in the very front row and you smile at me the whole time, right? Like, <laughs> like That's your job. Yeah. And I think I, I did that when I gave the code review talk. I had like you and Caleb and a couple other people like sit right front and center, right? And it went, I thought, really well because I just, anytime I was nervous, I was like, I'll just talk to these guys. They're my friends. Like they've heard well, me then you had Ryan things. Davis get up in the middle of your talk and shout, yes, I agree with everything <laughs> you're saying right now. <laughs> True. That did happen. Uh, so yeah, anyway, that's my talk prep. One thing that I did a lot towards the end of my talk giving that uh, worked out really well for me. I don't know if it will work out as well for other people, but so I think it's very important if you're going to give a talk. And this is also important when writing the proposal. The first question I always ask is, why is this better as a talk than a blog post? Mm. And for me, one of the ways that I always tried to make my talks better than a blog post was just to make them more personal. Mm-hmm. Part of why I, did, I, I guess I didn't like to rehearse as much uh, for my talks is that my talks are always different depending on the audience because I read a lot from the audience and like I'm very dependent on audience reactions. That's part of why speaking in Russia was so difficult for me to give that talk was because like a lot of the people were getting what I was saying through the translators and so there's a 10 to 15 second delay between <laughs> when I would tell a joke and when anybody would laugh. <laughs> or be, I mean like half the audience would laugh when I gave the joke and then crickets and then the other half the audience would laugh while i'm in the middle of the next sentence and so it just completely threw me off and so i'm sure i think the video is out there if if anybody's wondering why i'm really awkward giving that talk that's that's the main reason why but so what i'll do is i'll i'm also uh, very bad at consistent timing no matter how many times i rehearse it i know a lot of people it's just when they rehearse it 10 plus times their timing gets more consistent that never happens for me so i've just started i have tangents that i do or don't go down Mm-hmm. I will write like my rough target times um, that I want to be for a given slide. At, like the first thing I'll, it'll say in the notes is, here's what time it's supposed to be. Right. And so I'll have tangents that I may or may not go down, either A, because I forgot to go down that tangent, or B, because I definitely want to go down it because the audience seems more engaged in the topic that I'm talking about, or time, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have multiple endings to the talk. <laughs> where nice. it's like, and if I end it here, it's fine. It's choose your own adventure. Yeah, <laughs> I need to have that sort of flexibility if I want to sort of engage with the audience directly hmm. or I guess not directly is not the right word, but to have it be sort of personal and to actually be playing off of how I feel the audience is reacting to the talk. I need to have some flexibility, but I also want to be prepared. So that was a thing that I started doing a lot. Um, I think the first talk where I did it where it worked out really well was uh, the Rails 5 features you haven't heard about talk, which I gave at, at, at like three or four different conferences. And mm-hmm. I think it worked out really well there. But but like. 
I think there's three recordings of that talk online and each time it's completely different. And I didn't significantly rewrite the talk in between the each giving. It was just different. It went different paths. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that helps me as I write this talk. You know, I'm almost done the first draft, so I'll be practicing and honing pretty soon. So I got a question for you. Yeah. How do you feel about hosting the assets for your status page on the service that the status page is for? <laughs> are we talking about S3? We're talking about specifically what I found to be the most hilarious status page update, which was we have restored the ability to update our status page. Yeah, that got a lot of laughs in the ThoughtBot chat rooms as well. <laughs> so for those that somehow don't know, we're referring to, as we're talking, yesterday's S3 outage. Uh, which was probably two, three, four hours, something like that. And at some point, Amazon lost the ability to update their status page. <laughs> and then posted the, an update. The, the red down icon was hosted on S3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what do you want to say about this S3 outage? I noticed there's a lot of people who are like, and this is why you shouldn't depend on other people for your infrastructure with this implicit assumption that they're somehow going to have better uptime than Amazon has had. Right, right. I will say, though, that there are, I notice, a number of companies content to point the finger at Amazon and say, like, yeah, I mean, Amazon's down. Of course, everything's down, right? Instead of being like, asking, maybe they're doing this internally, but asking themselves the question of, like, how do we insulate ourselves? What right. do we what do we do it, like if your blog is down because S3 is down like okay I mean you could probably find a I, my advice to you is to find a way to make your blog work without S3 but like my advice to large companies is like find a way to make Heroku work without S3 yeah or whatever the case may be and it, and, and at least investigate whether it's plausible or you could allow people to pay more to have like this failover ability or you know, when I worked at Akamai, it was not uncommon for customers to have contracts with Akamai and another CDN, right? Because right. they don't expect Akamai to go down, but they realistically know it's going to happen and they want to be able to fail over to something else. So, so one of the, um, I don't remember what role he has at Shopify or what role he had at Netflix, but one of the higher ups at Shopify used to be, I think, if not CTO, something pretty high up at Netflix. And our last Prodigy Summit, he was talking a good bit about, I think it was what, 2014 was when EC2 went down Mm -hmm. on Christmas Eve. But uh, nobody remembers it as EC2 went down, right? It was all the news stories were families couldn't watch Christmas movies with their children because Netflix was down on Christmas Eve. Right. And so, the, the you know, the very next day, of course, the big thing Amazon, uh, Netflix went on to was making sure that they had proper redundancies on all of those dependencies, which they were pretty good about elsewhere in their company, but not so much on their actual cloud services stuff. And that's where Chaos Monkey came out of and, and all of the like making sure that, that the system still works if any part of the system stops working. And Chaos Monkey, if people aren't familiar, we can link to it in the show notes, but basically it's systematically or it kind of randomly, I guess, not systematically, that's why it's chaotic, starts introducing like latency in places or takes out services and things like that. Is that in production? Yeah, right. In production, not in a test environment. Like we're just going to start doing this because much like your data backups, you don't know they work unless you use them. Right. So. But yeah, I I think that was a, a, a big point that he was good to hammer home was that the public doesn't care that it was Amazon. Correct. Yes. Like they pay Netflix. They don't pay Amazon. The fact that Netflix pays Amazon, that's inconsequential to me. Right. And I always had this argument like this is a much sillier argument, but I always had like I have a TiVo 
like an actual honest to goodness TiVo branded TiVo. And okay. I would always get upset when something would change in the schedule back when I watched a lot of TV, something would change in the TV schedule, but it wouldn't get updated in the TiVo's guide data quick enough for TiVo to catch that like, oh, this thing got extended or like this show didn't start because the sports event before it ran long, right? Or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I always thought it was ridiculous that, that happened. And like when you complain about that to TiVo people, they're like, oh, well, we contract with Tribune for guide data. And it's like, well, I don't care. I don't pay Tribune. You pay Tribune. Like you could also know that like... <laughs> major sporting events occur on these three channels. Maybe we should just have somebody that sends updates to TiVo and say like, yep, the sporting event is over now, right? right. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the same kind of like, that's where that attitude kind of started for me was like, that's all well and good. I understand that crap happens, but for it to happen repeatedly in the same way over and over again, like at some point you have to wonder whether or not it's worth you investigating, like having some redundancy. Uh, right. to save your customers and to make yourself a better service, right? Because if uh, like if Shopify has this redundancy for its external dependencies, but what's, Shop what's Shopify's competitor? I don't know. Big commerce. Okay, but big commerce doesn't, right? Like Shopify is going to rise to the top uh, again right. more. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'd like to see more people instead of being like, shrug, Amazon S3. Like I, I hope that when this happens again, six to nine months from now, which it will, that it's less of a big deal. Well, and I think also for most applications, S3 being down, like some images don't serve. Right. So it's all it's all a matter of figuring that out as well. You know, like a lot of people are like, oh, it's a it's an Internet snow day. S3 is down. We can't do any work. Right. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Being on leave. The, the, the only time I noticed it at all was um, I was thinking like, I might, you know what? I think I might try and open up some Kerbal Space program tomorrow. I should go see if my mods, if any of my mods have updated. And so I ran the thing, the script to update my mods. And so it then got, went and pinged GitHub and then tried to download a bunch of zip files from the release pages from all these mods. But those zip files are on S3. Yeah. And so as yep. soon as I saw errors, I'm just like, oh, right. <laughs> Can't do that today. Yep. So I don't know. Investigate your redundancies, I guess, if you yeah. uh, are of a sufficient size that you need to care. Or at least, I mean, you certainly need to investigate whether you should care. Right. It's going to happen again. So I think this is also a good time to, to reiterate because I know some people had talked about it but didn't follow through on it, including some people I know, and the, these people will know who they are. But remember the DN simple outage and uh -huh. how everybody's like, oh, right, DNS or, or uh, that other DNS provider more recently also got with they DDoS? Oh, yeah. Dyn. Dyn, DLS, yeah. Dyn DNS. Yep. Right. Those two instances. In particular, wherever was like, oh, right, DNS is a single point of failure. This is a thing that we should have redundancy on. And a lot of people haven't followed through on that. Yep. Yep. And that's probably a bigger dependency issue for most people than S3. Yes. And like I, I believe on this show have gone on the rant before that like DNS has <laughs> like a single DNS provider going down should not take down your website. DNS has fallbacks built in. Yep. It's not hard. Unfortunately, people kind of proprietary up their DNS with DN simple and other things, other extensions to DNS that people want that aren't actually in the spec. And so it's a little more complicated, but it's still one of the relatively low hanging fruit of redundancy is yes. to have multiple name servers. So and there are other providers that provide CNAME on Apex like functionality. Right. And even if that's the only if that's the only proprietary thing you're doing, which that's probably the only proprietary thing you're doing, like worst case scenario, your primary DNS provider fails. Oh, no. Like, if somebody goes to HTTPS Apex domain, they get an SSLer, and your secondary does the 301 HTTP. 
Right. Nonsense. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, that's good for today. <laughs> I think that's enough get-off-my-lawn r- ranting about <laughs> redundancy. Right. I mean, it's easy for me to say as somebody who probably doesn't run any services that need to consider additional redundancy in the face of this outage. Although I will say, like, I would understand if some of our customers were coming to us and saying, like, I couldn't deploy to Heroku or yesterday I did something at Heroku. It caused my app to reboot and then it didn't come back up. Right. And it's like, should you be continuing to recommend that I use Heroku? And for most of our clients, I think the answer is yes. (laughs) Like the alternatives are also mostly Amazon based. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's the, that's the problem is Amazon goes down and the world just kind of goes down. Right. And if you're okay with that, then cool. I mean, what, are, what would be the alternatives, I guess? Like, I mean, obviously, there's always hosting your own, but I would not recommend that for any of our clients because that means hiring people to handle all that stuff. There's also, like, rack space and things like that. Well, specific right? alternatives that are definitely not at all related to Amazon who are similar in scope and scale would be Google Cloud Services, Azure, and uh, DigitalOcean. Are they in that space? Yeah. Huh. I feel like I used to use DigitalOcean for, like, my blog. I know they've, like, stepped things up quite a bit. Uh, they're in spaces. Okay. <laughs> they're in space. No, I mean, they've been, they've been announcing a lot of new products lately. Yeah. They seem to be on a track of competing with Amazon on a lot of stuff. They were like the droplets, right? You could have DigitalOcean droplets. And one of the things right. was like, you could have a droplet for a blog or something. And I think that's just shaped my impression of them, but definitely. And, and they had a huge, I don't remember what it was. They had a huge product announcement recently. Yeah. Definitely have more advanced uh, offerings than I'm remembering from running my blog for $5 a month or something like that. Um, cool. Anyway, I feel like, do we need to, we don't need a segue to the end of the show. We just, this can just be the end of the show, right? There, yeah. that's the segue where I said we need a segue to the end of the show. Show uh, notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 102. As always, running through reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bike shed.fm or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next time. Bring.